Go ahead and open up to the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> uh, again, as Bill already mentioned, I want to welcome all the, all the ladies, all the mothers uh, to the service this morning. By the way, as you've made your way in this morning, perhaps you've seen a, a bouquet bar of flowers. That is for all the ladies, uh, not just mothers in the room. So on your way out this afternoon, uh, make sure to take those or else they'll all end up on my kitchen table, which I do not need. Uh, so again, all ladies, uh, make sure to grab you a bouquet of flowers on your way out. You know, make it however you want. And uh, if, if your mom's not here, go ahead and take one to her. Take one to this, uh, the ladies in your life, uh, the mother of your children, uh, all, that, all that stuff. Uh, again, just want to welcome you here uh, to the Lord's house this morning. Uh, with that, I want to uh, start by saying I don't have a typical Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> if that's what you were expecting, then I do apologize. Uh, instead, I thought about what would be most helpful to the church family and to their mothers. And as is the case every week, I came away with the idea and the thought that what we need to be reminded of most when we gather is not how great we are. Although some of you mothers in the room are fantastically great. Whether we be mothers or fathers, sons or daughters, the thing we need reminded of most when we gather together is how great and glorious the gospel is. Not only do we need reminded of how great and glorious the gospel is, we need reminded of how we should be walking in the truth of that gospel. So growing up, my mom always said, uh, son, actions speak louder than words. Of course, if you have a mom, you were probably told this truth as well. Uh, actions speak louder than words. And we've been looking at over the last few weeks uh, what it means for a church to have a gospel culture. And what I mean by gospel culture is not merely that a church preaches from this book or, or preaches the gospel that this book declares, but that a church actually lives the gospel that it preaches because actions speak louder than words. It is true that if a church does not preach this book, does not preach the good news of all that the Father has accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that it will not have a gospel culture. That's because a gospel culture can only be produced within a people where the gospel is constantly preached and taught. However, there exists a possibility for a church in its gatherings to open this book and to preach the good news of the gospel. Listen very closely. It's possible for us to gather week in, week out, hear the good news of Jesus preached to us and still not lead to us living in light of that gospel. It's a dangerous place to be. I invite you to open with me to Galatians chapter 2, where we will see what John Stott, a great preacher of yesteryear, he said this about this passage. It is without doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the entire New Testament. Here you have two leading apostles of Jesus Christ face to face in complete an open conflict. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul goes head to head with the Apostle Peter. Look at it with me in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separating himself, uh, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas 
was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is not lo- no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If I do, it, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This morning I want to see two ideas, two movements in this text. I want to look at it with you and then I will be out of your way and you can take your mother to Texas Roadhouse. Two movements and uh, I apologize, I did not alliterate them. They're just, I'll just give them to you straight. Uh, the first is we see a flow from freedom to slavery. From freedom to slavery. And number two, the flow from knowledge to practice. And the main point, the aim in the sermon this morning is this, that the gospel alone tells us that we have been set free and that we belong in God's family. That's the, that's the point of the message this morning. The gospel alone tells us we have been set free and we belong in God's family. So let's get started here. The flow from freedom to slavery. The first thing I want you to see with me in this text is how easy it is for us to move from the freedom that we have in Christ to some type of slavery. For Peter, it was a returning into slavery of the Jewish customs primarily around the dietary laws. Look with me again at verse 12. It says this, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So here we have Peter, a leader in the church, chilling in Antioch. He's hanging out with his homeboys, the Gentiles, these Christian Gentiles. These are people who grew up outside of the synagogues. Uh, before hearing the gospel, they, they knew God but rejected him. They did not honor him or give thanks to him. They thought themselves wise, living life however they wanted. They saw themselves as being free from the commandments of God, which in their mind was a form of slavery in and of itself, they ate foods that any good Jewish man or woman would never dare to eat. You see, before hearing the gospel, these people were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, prideful, busted, sinful people. But then they heard the gospel. They heard and understood that God had created the world with the power of his word when he spoke, let there be, and there was. Everything that was ever created was They were taught and understood that God made everything beautiful and good. And then they understood that through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, the world was cast into the broken and sinful state that they had grown up in. They realized that the reason why the world was in such a state of affairs is because uh, we as humans had rejected God. 
thought ourselves better than God, thought that we in ourselves could be God, we thought we knew best. It was in this miserable state that they had grown up their whole lives outside of the, the hope of the gospel, outside of the scriptures, seeing brokenness all around them. And it seemed as if no one could actually figure out how do we actually put the pieces together? How do we get out of this mess? I wonder, do you ever view the world like that? They heard of a man named Jesus who claimed to be God in the flesh, claimed that he had come to make crooked paths straight and that he came to lead a generation out of brokenness, out of sin. They heard that it was this Jesus who had taken all of their wrongdoings, their wrongdoings, all of their shame, and taken the punishment from a holy God and paid for it. All of it. With his very life. And they heard that after three days, Jesus rose from the grave, victorious. The resurrection of Jesus Christ being the proof that their lives would never again be the same. They learned that heaven had finally come to earth. And that by faith in Christ, and receiving the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, that they would be restored to a right standing with God. And yet these people were still Gentiles had not conformed to the Jewish laws, not begin to eat kosher foods. They didn't bend to the old laws of religion which said, do this and then God will like you because they had heard the true and better law, the law of Jesus Christ. They believed that since Jesus really was who he said he was and he had really done what he said he was going to do, that the dietary, the sacrificial laws which were meant to point the Jews to, Jew, to Jesus were finally fulfilled. Let me put it plainly for you. These were people like you and I, if we are in Christ, simply loved Jesus. But from the perspective of a good Jewish person, these were still sinners. They still had some mess in their lives that they had to clean up and get right if they were to be accepted by this holy God. And Peter, being like Jesus, notice in verse 12, is eating with them. One of the things that I think draws us mostly to Jesus is the stories when Jesus is eating with who? Tax collectors and sinners. Because we see ourselves in that, don't we? We see ourselves as busted and broken people who need God's grace in our lives. And here, Peter is looking like Jesus. He's eating with these people who are not following dietary laws. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 10, which was read for, partially read for us this morning, is Peter is given a vision right before that text that Cindy read this morning. Right before that, Peter is given a vision by God in which God declares all food is clean. Right? I don't know if you remember the story from Acts chapter 10, but he sees in a vision uh, the Lord lowering down in a sheet animals uh, that he would have considered unclean. And the Lord says, take it and eat. <laughs> and you know what prideful Peter does? I don't think so. This is a trap. It's a trap. It's not. Four times the vision comes and finally the Lord says to Peter in that vision, he says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. You see, do you hear the echo of last week? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Who are we to say that these people over here are unclean, undeserving of grace? If God in Christ has given them grace. Peter was given the vision by God that all food laws were passed away. All food was considered clean. 
As a matter of fact, also in that chapter, chapter 10, chapter 11, Paul, uh, or Peter goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile man, and, and per Jewish law, a Gentile's house was unclean. Now, if you've been in my house, you're like, amen. I know, it is unclean. I got four, three children, one on the way. It's always unclean. But per Jewish law in Peter's day, if a, if a good Jewish person was to go inside of a Gentile's house, they themselves would become unclean. And Peter, after seeing the vision that God gave him in Acts chapter 10, he enters into Cornelius' house as if to say, welcome to the family, no longer unclean. This is good. Peter's living in Christian freedom hill. He's kicked back, chilling with these brothers in Antioch, eating bacon and perhaps even enjoying a good drink. But at this point, all is well. But notice what happens when the homies show up from James. Look at verse 12 again. Before certain men came from James, he was eating, past tense, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. These men from James, James was the pastor, the apostle in Jerusalem. So these brothers who show up from James is really uh, people coming from Jerusalem, 99% Jewish Christians. And so there, Peter is enjoying the company of Gentile Christians. And then in comes this group of Jewish Christians and notice what Peter's does. This is massive because uh, that, that, that you see and understand this in verse 12. Because when, what happens when these Jewish Christians enter the room, uh, Peter, who is living in Christian freedom, all of a sudden pulls back. When they came in, verse 12, he, he drew back and separated himself. Do you see the movement? Peter has moved from freedom in Christ to slavery of religion. He separates. He moves away from his brothers in Christ as if embarrassed by them. Why? Peter, why do you do this? Why does it seem Peter is willingly seeming to fall back into his Jewish roots? Notice the text also gives us the answer. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He drew back, he separated himself because he did not want to hear the condemnation of Jewish Christians. He was afraid. This is the Peter we all know because it was Peter who was afraid the night Jesus was arrested and beaten because of a young girl, thought that he was associated with Jesus. Now a leader and a pillar within the church is what Paul calls him in chapter 1 of this book, uh, a pillar within the church, and is again afraid of what other people might think. I wonder, do you ever see yourselves in Peter's shoes here? Do you ever bend under the weight of peer pressure to either be silent when you should speak or to speak when you know you should be silent? Do you ever quiver under the glare of perhaps a parent or a person you respect, even though you know in your gut that based upon this book, you are right and they are wrong? I know I have. Shame to admit that far too often I get weak knees and knots in my stomach when I know that a person who I'm talking with in front of me, all that they need is Jesus. By the way, that's the answer for almost all of, all of our problems. Not almost. All of our problems, our answer is we need to hear again the good news of Jesus. And all I can do is merely nod my head in agreement and say, uh-huh, uh-huh. 
friends, it's this kind of weak knees and fearful cowering that produces a culture within a church that doesn't live in light of the gospel. Notice that it wasn't just Peter that began to live a lie here. Look at verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews, that is the men who have come from Jerusalem, begin, after seeing Peter disengage, they begin to also act hypocritically. They begin to live and act differently than what they believe to be true in their heart. Barnabas, the man of encouragement, Paul's right-hand missionary friend and companion, even he was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see, when a group of people who believe the gospel live as if the gospel isn't true, it will cause other Christians to also begin to live as if the gospel isn't true. Listen, even if they believe it. Even if they believe it. When a church professes that the gospel is for those who are weak, for those who are broken, for those who are the enemies of God. When they profess those things, but they do not live in a way that actually shows those things to be true, then they are what Paul says in verse 14, that they are not in step with the truth of the gospel. They have become a people who believe in freedom, theoretically, but continue to live in slavery. This, of course, leads Peter to confront Paul, or or Paul to confront Peter to his face. Look at verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, notice, he's not pulling his brother aside and saying, hey, can I I talk to you for a minute? This is full on in the open, face to face, before them all. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to, to live like Jews? Do you hear the question being asked here? Peter, you are a Jew. But you don't live like one. You, you don't live like a Jew. Rather, you, you live like a Gentile. Therefore, how can you force these Gentiles to live in a, in a way, as a Jew, that you yourself do not live? In Peter's withdrawing from the Gentile Christians, when the other brothers roll in, he is stating loudly and publicly, you know what? You all got to live like this now. He is rebuilding walls which Christ himself had torn down. You say, well, I don't, I don't say it, Pastor. How is Peter doing that? This is a question we should be asking. How is Peter's actions actually out of step with the gospel? In other words, what does the gospel actually have to say to our daily lives and how we live and what we eat and what we drink and how we live? Let us move from the flow from freedom to slavery to the flow from knowledge to practice. Look at verse 15 with me. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says, Peter, you, you and I, Paul, Peter, you and I were Jews by birth. We were born Jews. Peter, we were not born Gentiles. That's what 
The implication is we were not born Gentiles. Here he says Gentile sinners because from the eyes of a Jewish man, these Gentiles were a lot worse off than the Jews. But now watch this. Paul begins to unpack for Peter uh, the gospel that Peter says he believes. This gospel in a nutshell. He says, Peter, you and I were both Jews. And you and I both know, like, like we know how busted and broken our Jewishness is. He says, our Jewishness, our following the works of the law, will never justify us. He says, you and I both know this doesn't work. What we do know works is, is, is faith in Christ. This justified, mentioned three times in verse uh, 16, twice in verse 17. This word justified here is a legal term. It's the good news that sinful men and women may be brought into acceptance with God, not because of any law keeping they have done, but because they simply have faith in Christ. Martin Luther wrote this about the doctrine of justification. He says, this is the truth of the gospel. It's also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this doctrine well. Teach it into others and beat it into their heads continually. And I'm like, this brother must have had some children. And he had to beat some stuff into their heads. You see, the truth of the gospel is that you and I are only made right before God because of Jesus. You and I are only made right before a holy God because of Jesus. Listen, we don't add anything to it. We have been forgiven wholly and freely because of Jesus. Listen, all sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for already because of what Jesus has done for us. This is, what the gospel, this is why the gospel is such good news. So when Peter withdraws from these Gentile Christians, he is saying with his actions that, you know what? I think if we're truly going to be saved truly forgiven, if we're going to truly be accepted and welcomed by God, we've got to do some other things. And in this case, those other things we're observing, these dietary laws, and we do this today, don't we? You must talk a certain way, Pastor, Christian. You must dress a certain way. You must remove your tattoos, not drink certain things, read the right translation of the scriptures. We lack joy when others receive grace. We believe God loves us, but perhaps doesn't really like us. We think our salvation might be robbed the minute we stumble into sin. We compare our righteousness to other Christians. We believe others must look and behave the way we think that they should look and behave before they truly can belong and be welcomed. The difference between us and this passage is that Paul thinks that this is a massively big deal. Big deal. Nowhere else does Paul ever confront an apostle face to face in public. We, on the other hand, merely shrug these things off. We call it, well, this is just my personal problem. This is my little issue. For Paul, what Peter was doing was, in fact, denying the gospel he says he believes. And this is massive. We do not see in our own drifting, a pra in our practice, a drifting from the gospel. But, but brothers and sisters, 
when we begin to believe that God loves us but doesn't like us, when we begin to believe that perhaps we actually do need to uh, contribute something to our right standing with God, we're drifting from the gospel. Paul says it in verse 21 that in fact we are not just drifting from the gospel, we are denying the very grace of God. So look again with me at verse, verse 16. He says this. <clears throat> Yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the, the argument goes like this. We know a person is justified through faith in Jesus alone. So therefore, we have believed in this Jesus in order that we will be justified. What Paul is doing is he's pointing out to Peter and to the rest of us that the moment we begin to drift from this idea that justification is by grace alone, then we've moved from the gospel. We've moved from the gospel. And you see, it's possible to say, well, I believe it. I believe everything this book wrote, everything in it. You know, it's interesting here that if you look again at verse 16, look at the first three words. He says, yet we know. This is interesting. He's talking about himself and Peter. He said, hey, 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 homeboy, Peter. We know only justification by grace through faith alone. We, we know that. We, we have believed it. Therefore, why aren't you living it? You see, Peter began to live in a culture which began to say of him that maybe you need to do something else. Separate from them Jewish, them Gentile brothers. Now perhaps you're in here and you're thinking like, well, this sounds pretty good, pastor. You mean I can actually do whatever I want? And Paul in verse 17 is going to answer a massive objection to this truth. Perhaps even you as a Christian might be having a hard time processing this and understanding the question, well, does it really matter then how we actually live? If we are only justified on the basis of Jesus' work and I have put my faith in him, then why can't I just go sin tomorrow and still be justified? The argument is that what Paul is teaching is a highly dangerous doctrine. It will lead to a collapse of morality and personal responsibility. If people can merely trust in Jesus and be accepted without having to do any good works, then what is the point of doing good works? Look how Paul asked the question in verse 17. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Right? It's the same question from Romans chapter 6. If, 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 if we are free only in Christ, if we are justified only in Christ, then, then shouldn't we just keep on sinning? He says, certainly not. Certainly not. And he answers in verse 18. He answers this little question at the end. He says, wouldn't Jesus then be, wouldn't he be in charge of all of our sin? Wouldn't he be responsible for it if, if our justification in Christ? Verse 18 says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Notice he's putting the blame on himself, not on Jesus. If a Christian continues to sin after coming to faith, then he is a transgressor. But that doesn't make Jesus a sinner, is his argument. 
But, th- but then Paul answers what happens when someone is justified in Christ. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to, to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. This is what we sang this morning. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, when someone has put their faith in Christ, there is a death and a resurrection that happens to the individual. Twice in these verses, he speaks of dying and rising to life again. Both of them happen in union with Christ. It says Christ died and rose again. And it is in that that our lives as Christians, that is where our lives live. Paul is saying that when we've put our faith in Jesus, when we have become justified because of Jesus, it says that we have died with him. Do you see it? Verse 19, he says, through the law, I died to the law. That is, that the law demands that you and I should have been put to death, right? Go back to Genesis chapter 3, he says, uh, in, the law, in Genesis chapter 2, in the day that you eat this fruit, you will die. You will surely die. That's what the law demanded. Not just of Adam and Eve, but of every single one of us. Whenever we have fallen away, whenever we have sinned uh, against God, which, by the way, uh, David says that in our mother's womb, we were conceived in iniquity. From day zero, we had already broken God's law. And the law says, you know what? That person who breaks God's law should be put to death. And so Paul says, with Jesus' death, I died. When Jesus died, I died. It was in Jesus' death that the law's demands were satisfied, you see. A person who is justified in Christ is not free to sin because you have died to that life. Romans chapter 6, all over again. And now you share in the life that Christ now lives. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new cre- creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says it makes no sense for you and I to live in sin, to continue in sin because we live in Christ. Therefore, we live as he lives. Our our lives are completely uh, hanging on Jesus. Everything is different now because we are different now. But look again at the end of verse 20. Paul brings us home to bear on the individual when he says, the son of God who loved me who gave himself for me. Do you hear how Paul is emphasizing the way in which Jesus has put himself in relation with Paul? (laughs) He loves me. He gave himself for me. He wanted me in his family. He came and lived a perfect life because he knew that I could not do it. You see, the gospel only begins to become truly good news when we see what it means for ourselves. It's more than just personal relationships. That's true, but it's not less than that. So when we say things like, God so loved the world, 
We should not only think of that in terms of abstraction, as if God loves you know, the world over there. We should think of it in terms of, for God so loved me, because I'm part of the world. Broken though I am, sinner though I am, prideful though I am, he loves me. And he gave himself for me. Listen, I don't know that I would give myself for me. You understand? Are you tracking with me? I don't know that I'm worth that much. And yet Jesus gave himself for me. He gave himself for you too, friend. Non-believer, he gave himself for you. Though you often think of your life as trash, he views you as treasure because he loves you. And this is what the gospel is. Glorious news that we have been set free in Christ. This is the truth that we must know and believe and live in. In conclusion, look at how Paul ends the passage in verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. In, in this he means that he's not living as if he is trying to ongoingly earn God's approval or God's welcome. He is living in grace. He is living in knowing that the person he used to be has been put to death. Peter, however, in this moment was nullifying the grace of God by withdrawing and separating himself. Listen, friends, for some of you, I don't know what your church background is. For others of you, I know you have been deeply hurt by the church before, but perhaps some of you have heard the good news of Jesus, listen, and wept tears of rejoicing knowing that you have been loved and accepted by Jesus, only to come in contact with someone like Peter is being in this moment and knocked off balance and left wondering. Will I ever measure up? Will I ever be good enough? Will I ever get my sin issue under control? Maybe I should just fake it until I make it. Look right at me. I want, I want to tell you this morning. In Christ, you are clean. You are forgiven. There is a place for you in the heart of Christ and among all of God's people. If the blood of Jesus is upon you, listen, you belong. You belong. Paul says at the end, near the end of this book in Galatians, he says, for, for freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The gospel alone is what tells us we have been given freedom and that we belong. Three implications and then I'll close this down. Number one, Calvary Baptist Church's culture is one where we all stand, listen, freely forgiven because of Jesus. 
Calvary Baptist Church's culture is one where we all stand freely forgiven because of Jesus. You say, of course, pastor. That's implication number one. And that's got to be so true in your life and so true in the life of this church if implication number two will ever have a chance of coming to fruition, which is because of that, because we all stand forgiven freely in Christ, then we do not have to pretend that we have no sin. Like we don't have to pretend that we ain't still struggling. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together. I've been in all kinds of churches in my life. Some good, some bad, some in between. One of the things that draws me to the church over and over and over again is that this is the only place on earth where we can be fully authentic. We don't have to fake it. But why not? Implication number one, we, we're already forgiven, family. Freely forgiven in Christ. Do we believe it? If so, then we should not have to pretend that we no longer struggle. And you know what the, you know what the scriptures say to do with your, your burdens? Confess your faults one to another. Bear one another's burdens. Most of us are too busy pretending that we have no burdens. You understand what I'm saying? Most of us pretend that we have it all together. And listen, that creates a culture in which people who walk in here knowing they're busted, knowing they have sin, knowing that they have failings, they say, this ain't the place for me. This ain't the place for me. Where are real people with real problems, real sin? Number three. Like Paul, we must be willing to confront one another when the gospel is at stake. For Paul, he could not merely let this thing go. Think about it. Had Galatians 2 not happened, Peter withdraws from the Gentile Christians, brings along the other Jewish Christians with him, even Barnabas separates from himself, rebuilds the wall which Christ has destroyed. If Paul had not stood him and opposed him to his face, calling him on his condemnation, imagine where the church would be today. Would we not have these Christians over here, they're doing it right, but the rest of us, we just gotta, gotta do better. And the whole point of the gospel is that we cannot do better. We need Jesus. Therefore, when the gospel is at stake, not just with the words that we say, but with the lives that we live, we must be willing to confront one another and lovingly push one another on. That means when we begin to say things like, I don't, I don't know if I've been good enough this week, Pastor, for the Lord to love me. It means we got to get in each other's face and listen. You weren't good enough this week. That's the point. That's the whole point of the cross. Jesus died for that sin, brother. This week, he died for that sin. Trust him. Lean into it. 
Of course, that doesn't happen outside of community. It's why, it's why we have it on the wall out there now. Then our vision that, that we're going to live in community. We're going to do this thing together. So I have blind spots. You have blind spots. We're all easily led astray. This is Peter, by the way. Peter, the rock upon which I will build my church. That Peter. Peter stood up in the book of Acts and said, hey, you all killed Jesus. That's what he said to the, that's what he said to the Jews. You killed him. But God loves you. Come on in here. It's that Peter who so easily was walking not in step with the gospel. And if Peter can do that, the rest of us, we need each other. We need each other. We stand freely forgiven in Christ. Therefore, we do not have to pretend that we have it all together and we must be willing to confront one another when the gospel's at stake. Let's pray. Father God, I pray, Lord, that you would move our hearts to repentance whenever we've tried to add anything to your grace. We feel it's too easy that somehow we must add to it. This is our nature speaking, Father, and I pray that you would continue to push that out of us. We are justified only because of your Son. So, Father, may we walk in this grace. May we share this grace with those around us. May you transform our lives from the inside out, making all things new in Christ. May we no longer try to hold on to our, our good deeds. But may we, with empty hands of faith, come again and again and again to the foot of the cross, finding grace, love, acceptance, and welcome in your Son. Father, I pray that we would uh, be encouraged that no one in this room has it all together, not even me, Father, least of all me. Father, I pray that you would continue uh, to have us push into this idea of the gospel that we should be loving one another by carrying one another's burdens. Pray for authentic lives, grace-driven lives, Father. Lord, this will not happen outside of the work of the Spirit. And so we ask the Spirit to, to continue to mold us and to shape us and to form us into the image of your Son, which we know you will do. Father, may we always live in light of the gospel. May we live what we say that we believe in our hearts through the power of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother Philip.